0: This podcast is a member of the Mud Puppy Games Network.
1: Network. 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 I'm John Peterson of Playing at the World, and you are listening to Save for Half.
2: Now that you've cast out the evil sorcerer and taken his treasures and searched his colon for gems, it's time for you to kick back and listen to the Safer Half Sideshow. Welcome to the Safer Half
3: Sideshow.
0: Where it's all fun and games until somebody takes a four-sider to the eye.
2: Don't hate game. hate hate
4: game. Greetings, everybody! Welcome to the safer half sideshow, where we are talking the elusive shift with john peterson and as ever i am dm mike who will be playing the role of perfidious albion this podcast and joining me is alarums and excursions herself dm liz hello owl and weasel as played by dm corbett totally Uh (laughs) (laughs) uh-oh and the wild hunt dm jim there
2: yeehaw
4: (laughs) (laughs) we're going to be talking about The Elusive Shift, recently published by MIT Press. Or is that Simon & Schuster? I get confused on those two.
2: I thought it was MIT Press. Was it MIT? I thought I li-
4: read it in the Kindle as Simon & Schuster. Am I John, wrong? do you know
3: who's paying you? It's, abs- it's absolutely <laughs> MIT Press.
1: It, it is MIT Press,
4: Press. yes. Okay, oh, yeah. excellent. I'm sorry, I'm John. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And there's John. Yes. Hey, wait, we have a guest, too. Who is all the fanzines. But first, do we have any emails?
0: We actually do have emails.
4: What about patrons?
0: We have those too. We have patron. Page- we have patrons to, to laud, and we have emails to read. So let's start with the so patrons.
2: People that like us and people
3: that don't. Lauding is the least we can do. They're giving us money.
0: I know, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> okay, so. Patron shoutouts, uh, before I begin, I want to say, as usual, I don't give out full names on these shoutouts for privacy purposes. If anybody listening to this should decide to become a patron in the future, and for whatever reason you do want me to give your full name in your shoutout, drop us a brief message through Patreon when you join and let us know that. So, our newest members of the Halfling Horde are Carlos M., Buck Backup, and karma s so thanks guys you're the best we love you
4: yay we've
3: got good karma we do Mm -hmm. was that buck backup buck backup
0: buck backup
3: yeah i wrote that one down i'm stealing that (laughs) (laughs) totally awesome
2: but you said you didn't use full names
0: (laughs) (laughs) it was one word therefore
2: Uh, okay so buck backup
0: all right emails I read all the emails on the face of the earth. No emails were harmed in the making of this podcast. Our first email is from DM Kojo. Kojo! And, and Kojo writes, Greetings, Hapsavers. Many of the games you have discussed on your show involve games based on licensed properties, such as Doctor Who, Star Trek, and Flash Gordon. I'm curious as to how you run campaigns in such universes. Do you try to fit in between the canon lines, throw canon out the window, create an alternate reality, or something else? And I also wanted to throw in future requests for shows on WEG Star Wars, Star Frontiers, TSR Marvel Superheroes, and Car Wars. Thanks, DM Kojo.
3: How have we not done Star Wars and Marvel superheroes? (laughs) Because we keep doing weird
2: ones.
0: Yeah,
4: (laughs) I keep keep having Marvel on my list, but when it comes to my time around, it's always like, oh, but I want to do this one because it's more fun.
0: Well, maybe I'll choose Marvel for you.
3: We all read comic books. Why do Marvel?
0: Yeah.
2: (laughs) Or Star Frontiers, which you've also talked about. Or uh, what was the other one you mentioned? You mentioned like two or three there. Like, yep, yep, Star yep. Star Wars. Yep,
3: Star Wars. Yeah.
2: Well, Star Wars, Star Frontiers, and Marvel Superheroes, and one more, wasn't it? Car Wars. Car Wars. Yeah. Car Wars.
3: Oh, I, I, have a, I have a motion from the floor. How we take turns picking these games, let's just say that's our next three picks at the end of the page. <laughs> <module. laughs> that way we don't got to think of nothing. Always a vote for no
4: thinking. But anyway, I will start. The way I do it, I don't do it. Next.
0: Uh, that's not entirely true.
4: I, okay, yes, I did run Star Trek.
0: <laughs> you also ran a very small Blake 7 campaign for me.
2: Yes,
4: I ran Blake 7, but it was after Gouda Prime, so that gave me more flexibility with continuity.
0: Huh, mm-hmm. So that would probably fall into the something else. yeah. You basically tacked your stuff on at after the end of the series the of in the Blake series. 7.
4: On uh, Star Trek, I tried doing some of the more classic stuff, but that was the game that first brought across to me the perils of running a licensed property with players who may know the property better than you do.
2: Oops. Uh, no you know better than you, according to them. <laughs> well, they
4: knew enough to catch me out. And when you're 14, you really don't want to get caught out by fellow 14-year-olds.
2: And and they made sure to ruin the game for the fun of it? Yep. Awesome. They are a great player. You should keep them around all the time.
4: Yeah, no. (laughs) Liz?
0: (laughs) Oh, gosh. I've never run a game on a licensed property. I think if it was me, I probably...
2: Rocky Mollingle. She hasn't (laughs) run it. Oh, that's right. That's right. She hasn't run it. She's weird.
0: And it's very episodic <laughs> in nature anyway. You know, it's just, you're not
4: following Bullwinkle continuity.
0: There is no continuity. <laughs> I would probably, you know, he says throw cannon out the window or create an alternate reality. Those two are almost the same thing or can be. Um, but yeah, I would probably just create an alternate reality and say, this is what it is. I don't think that I would try to fit things in between the canon lines. Um, okay. All right, Corbett.
2: I've run a lot of, I haven't run Dr. Who, so I haven't really gotten that one out, but. Um,
0: run
4: a lot of Star Trek.
2: I've run a lot of Star Trek. I've run a lot of Star Wars. I've run Marvel superheroes. I've run DC heroes.
4: Well, you're probably the expert here.
2: Well, I mean, you could say the same thing about, like, Forgotten Realms and uh, Dragonlance and all those have, like, a history you have to follow. But you don't have to follow that sort of stuff. I don't run those either. (laughs) I've done done a combination of a lot of different things because I've played before and after. Like, okay, Star Wars is a great example. There was a time, believe it or not, when there was only three movies. (laughs) No. And a couple specials. (laughs) But uh, it was real easy. You could just, like, oh, I'll just do it after like mike had mentioned on just if you af- after, after a certain time it's whatever you want to do Or before like way far before or even slightly before you can still do a little bit with it but with a little less wiggle room i honestly with star wars i loved playing directly in the movies that way they said oh the death star just blew up well i, I know where we're at they had a marker let's find luke and kill him <laughs> I, I really rarely ran into that. I
4: think no, I had more I people. I always
3: ran into that. There's always one guy who wants to. I, I have a question from the audience who wants to okay. know what's the droid Saturday morning cartoon canon in your game?
2: Um, yeah, I kind of followed a lot of their stuff too because it was. I've even followed the Ewok Adventures because it was fun. And that's what Star Wars is all about, it was fun. Most people, I know it's hard to believe this, but there was a time. <laughs> When Star Wars fans were just fun people. And Star Trek fans were all uptight. I know there might be a change now, slightly.
0: Nah. <laughs> but nah.
2: But that was always the thing with the Star Wars versus Star Trek. Is like Star Trek had rules and follow this and everything had to be a certain way. And Star Wars was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You got a white sword and blaster things and fly around. Who cares? Right. It's not okay. about the science. It's about the fun. But I have <laughs> done... Fantasy. Um, I think one of my more popular options with Star Trek was um, I I would make it like an episode, like literally like an episode. I would actually put in commercial breaks and have the characters uh, break and do like Chevy commercials and stuff and just make it feel like the show more.
3: It tastes Uh, just like butter. Promise. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Just like really, like dive into the whole genre of let's play it exactly like it was, not just a little bit like it was, but By like the
4: hammer of Al Thor. What a savings!
2: Yeah, yeah, basically you enjoy it in that way. Okay,
3: Jim. Oh, I'm just like you. I've never, ever run a, a licensed thing because I want to make everything up. Uh, that said, I love buying them. Like all the Star Treks, all the Doctor Whos, and especially, especially, especially all the John Carter and Mars games. I own them all, read them all, love them, but would never run them because I want to do my stuff. The closest I came was my original Champions Universe, which was full of just every DC and Marvel character I wanted in it retread it. Which a lot of us did that. Oh, yeah. Before there was a Marvel superheroes game or DC Heroes game.
1: Okay, John? Since you were recently talking about Flash Gordon and that came up, like, I find it fascinating how the... You know the Flash Gordon RPG is so pegged to canon. There's like no escape from canon. <laughs> How <laughs> yeah, like the right? game is so rigidly designed. Like okay, you're like on the planet, and your job is to get Ming, and like that's what you're gonna do. So I mean, certainly you can find these uh, these approach to these games that incorporate that. I I can't say I I also always run homebrew though. It's not I, I, I yeah, I've never really been attached to. Um, you know, doing games that are based in somebody else's sandbox. Well,
4: hope that answers things, Kojo. Or muddles it more. (laughs) (laughs) Or both. Okay, Liz, next email.
0: Our next email is from Luau Lu. I love
2: this guy already.
0: (laughs) Well, he's been to several North Texas RPG cons, I believe, you know, with a table or without a table. All of us have probably seen him at North Texas at some point if we did not recognize him at the time. But anyway, Lou Lou, and
3: know him from social media, too.
0: Yeah. So Lou says, Aloha, gang. What a pleasant miracle to find you guys still podcasting. I thought I had lost Jim, Liz, and Mike forever.
4: We made our saving throw.
0: The old Save or Die podcast's episode catalog got me through many arduous hours of lonely work. And And then I came to the end and thought it was just over. But two years later, and here you are. Corbett is a great addition to the crew, by the way. Oh, wow. Anyhow, I just want to reach out and thank you guys for giving me those months of vicarious gaming at a time when things were really tough. Also, I would love for you guys to do a review of Pace Setters Chill system. It is a game system I was always curious about as a young kid thumbing through things at the local hobby shop, but one I never got around to buying or playing. Keep up the great work. Luau Lu.
3: And thanks, see, there's, there's, there's number four. Just put it on the list. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. I, yeah,
3: I know
4: what he means. Whenever I was flipped through Dragon Magazines in the 80s, I always saw that. I think it was Holloway art. Oh, these guys looking like out of a Hammer Horror movie, dealing with monsters and stuff. I thought, oh, I so want to get that game. I never could, though. I only got it
3: a few years ago, thanks to Glenn, actually. He met, found a copy and sent it to me. This is probably a good time to do a free commercial for Save or Die, too, because it's still going strong with Carl and the guys and the gals, so.
4: Yep, Carl and Crispy. Still there, Saverdie.info, I believe, so.
0: Yeah, you can still get your basic D&D fix.
4: All right. Email number three, then.
0: Okie dokie. Our third email is from Richard Burley. And Richard writes, Hi, DMs. Loved the last show. It was a very interesting discussion. It was great hearing comments from Gary Brown. Now, this should tell you this is a pretty old letter.
4: A <laughs> 007 episode.
0: Um, who is a good friend of mine. He and I created the Cascadia Supers setting together, and Ocelot is my OC. I... So it's your fault! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because Because Mike and I have been playing in the Cascadia Supers setting with Gary. In that storyline, Ocelot disappeared some years ago. Nobody knows if he is still alive or what. And And the villain
4: group he fought are now, quote-unquote, heroes. No,
3: really.
0: Yes, the new heroes of the city.
3: So wait, 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 wait. wait. And now you've got Ocelot's email address. You can... Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> you, can d- you can dig for a little information on the outside for your channel. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> anyway, he goes on to say, I hear that you are all playing in that setting, which makes me happy. I would love to hear how that is going. Anyhow, I've listened to your podcast on and off for a while, and I love it. By the way, I know you were joking about comparing Tunnels and Trolls to D&D, the latter affectionately known as The Other Game by TNT Fanatics.
2: <laughs> 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 but...
0: I personally would dig hearing that discussion. TNT is my fantasy go-to RPG these days, and in my humble opinion, it was way ahead of its time design-wise as it was the second RPG just after 1E D&D. TNT really doesn't get the love it deserves. But I still love D&D as well, which was the first RPG I played. So it's a both and, not an either or. I look forward to listening to more of your episodes. Oh, by the way, I'm glad that you all are friends with the Grogner Files guys who are completely cool. Thanks again.
3: I got this one. (laughs) I got got this one. Windows is a fine operating system for those who choose to use it.
2: (laughs) Wow. You don't like Tunnels and Trolls?
3: (laughs) I like it as much as I like anything. I own a copy, so I like it enough to have it on the shelf. Well,
4: fortunately, we've got John here to discuss the differences between Tunnels and Trolls
1: and D&D. Go. (laughs) <laughs>
3: you yeah, get the we'll, re- we'll read it later. <laughs> that's
1: right. We have forty-five minutes, right? Uh, sure, <laughs> sure. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh,
4: I mean, it's it's Coke and Pepsi, really. You know, I mean, you've got some people love one, some people love the other. I. It was my second fantasy RPG, I believe. Although I'm, it may have been melee. But if not, it was certainly my third. So, you know, I got the box set at the time and it was really cool. It had its solo adventures, which was its sell. But as far as the campaign goes, Richard, basically something called COVID pretty much has interrupted that campaign for over a year now. So hopefully Uh, we'll get back to it.
0: I do, because I really enjoy my teleporting character.
2: Coke and Pepsi, though, really? I would think it's more like Coke versus a box of carpenter nails, but You are <laughs> spoiling for a
3: fight, man. <laughs> <laughs> Just... <laughs> Send all hate mail to Corbett at Saberdie. Listen, man, dozens of gamers worldwide can't be wrong. <laughs> oh, ow. 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 Hey. Ow. Actually
4: right I've heard and Trolls. Uh. Back me up on this, John. <laughs> Tells and Trolls was actually fairly popular in England.
1: So it's true that the UK version of Tunnels and Trolls, um, the the little digest size pamphlets of it, uh, they reached a lot of people before D and D did. And you you see this in with with uh, a few isolated pockets as well that really kind of got Tunnels and Trolls before they got D and D. Certainly, I mean, I think Ken St. Andre should be commended for having stripped the game down to its essentials and you know taking it to a place where it was much more accessible, where it lost a lot of kind of the the wargaming complexity, I guess, that necessarily D&D brought with it. And a lot of people connected with that. So I mean, there's no wrong bad fun. There are people who like tunnels and trolls. I, I get it. I, I'm also a bit sympathetic to the people who argue that it was kind of the first derivative knockoff, right? I mean it was first, know, clone. E- <laughs> Yeah. I mean e- EPT, right, when it came out was certainly deeply connected to D&D, still published by TSR. But it was, you know, a complex, expensive game with, like, you know, all this, like, fast history. And, I mean, Tunnels and Trolls shipped as, I'd say, a pretty incomplete product, even by OD&D standard. Um, And it wasn't really until, like, 79, I think, that, you know, when Liz Danforth was editing it, that it really became a coherent system.
4: Well, and it had so many of the solo adventures, which were great for if you couldn't find players or if your players were a bunch of jerks. Yeah, I
1: mean, McAllister and those Buffalo Castle and the, the games that came out and that game book tradition, they were extremely innovative. Um, there there weren't things. I mean, this was before Choose Your Own Adventure books were out, right? Yeah. That, like, you saw things like Buffalo Castle. And so, I mean, that, that alone, yeah, um, ensures Tunnels and Trolls uh, an interesting place in the history books. I never thought of that.
2: The, the Choose Your Own Adventure books came out after
1: Tunnels and Trolls did Solo Adventures. Yeah. So who's copying who? Hmm. Well, so... There was an obscure set of books that are called Tracker Books, which actually did the Choose Your Own Adventure format. They were, they were UK-based, if I recall, like in the early 70s. And the first um, Edward Packard book, which is not called Treasure Island, what's it called? Um, some, something similar to that. Like it, Before they created the Choose Your Own Adventure brand, like that was out at around the same time Buffalo Castle was. So it's not like this was like entirely unique. But certainly the idea that you would kind of program game nodes this way And then have like combats that you would resolve as you went to different places or like system effects you had to continually tabulate as you went through the adventure. That was incredibly innovative.
3: Which then almost immediately flowed into computer games.
1: Very much. You you have to
3: write those that way.
1: John,
2: I can't believe you used logic and reason and encyclopedic (laughs) information against my prattling. It's really frustrating.
1: Sorry. Yes, I I, I can be quiet
2: while you do your emails. (laughs) We'll have a lot to talk about.
4: Ah, (laughs) say I thank you for that excellent amount of TNT. (laughs) So let's take this home to the last email then. Although Uh, I think, is it an email or?
0: uh, This is actually a post from Dragon's Foot by Michael Falconer.
4: Yeah, normally we don't do these, but I threw this in because it had a lot to do with uh, Space Patrol.
0: Yeah. So Michael writes... In my group, and on my podcast, we use the Star Trek Adventure Gaming in the Final Frontier rules by Michael Scott, which is the Space Patrol rules plus a Star Trek license. It's not much different, though, as you might expect. Some Star Trek content was added and some non-Trek stuff was removed. Among the removed rules, which we have gone back to Space Patrol for, are cyborgs and cybernetics. Not something you normally see in Star Trek, but one of our crew was hacked up and, quote, improved, end quote, by an Orion mad scientist. STAGFF doesn't have a price list either, but there is a must have expansion in Different Rules, issue 18, which does provide prices, as well as more substantial character creation and advancement info.
4: Is that Different Worlds?
0: Yes. Okay. This has come in handy in many ways. Even though the main PCs are in Starfleet and get their equipment issued to them, they can't create things out of thin air, so I give them an allowance and make them buy what they need. Is that it? That is it.
2: Okay. Right. Interesting.
1: Yeah. It is an interesting so, uh, story how Space Patrol's rules became the Final Frontier, the Heritage rules, in that I, I believe it's actually the same guy, uh, Kurdic went by like multiple names. And <laughs> so it's like, it's the same <laughs> designer. It's the same system. They use the mission master like thing from it. And so it just heritage had managed to secure the star Trek license and was in a position to like produce this. They, they had John Carter around the same time, actually, and mm-hmm. did some of the earliest like John Carter RPG stuff at heritage. So yeah, it's a, it's a cool system in a, in a lot of respects. Yeah. Huh.
4: Different name pseudonyms for the same author. Who, who else did that? Jim, a guy did a game, Time Ship? What? <laughs> time Ship! Kirby <laughs> Brennan? Yeah. Your favorite RPG ever?
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> we all know Tom <laughs> Tullis. And, 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 like, you have your Doctor Who episode where the moon hatches and a dragon comes out. That's your line. You can't get past that line, right? Yeah. <sighs> Big so, space so, so, so a game called Time Ship with no time ships in it. That's me.
1: Okay, <laughs> I'm out. Ah, <laughs> uh,
4: yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you heard of that game, John? Time Ship, yeah. Time Ship by Yaquinto. Yeah, Herbie yeah, Brennan? yeah. Yep. Any opinion?
1: No. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't smart, express opinions about move. Yaquinto games. <laughs>
3: smart move. Wisdom eighteen move right there. <laughs> Well, their
4: war games had really great counters with them. I gotta, I gotta say that. Nice thing. Their war
1: games are better, yeah. I yeah. mean, that, that team, that was the original uh, Battleline team, right? That, uh, I think so. Again, also passed through Heritage. Heritage acquired Battle Line, and then Steve Peak and those guys broke off and formed a Quinto. So, I mean, their, their war gaming pedigree is, is impeccable. The RPG side, uh, well, yeah.
4: Which was mostly, I guess, Herbie Brennan, really, because
3: he did Man, Myth, and Magic, too, as well yeah. as Time Ships. So. It's all his fault. Next time we have John on, hopefully enough time will have passed that he has forgotten how we begged him to do emails with him and it's just been hot seat after hot seat. <laughs> right,
2: right. I, I'll have do a random this opinion. Again. I have a random opinion. What do you think, John? And give us the exact facts.
4: Because <laughs> we expect you to know.
2: Actually, it is kind of nice to have a definitive answer for everything really quickly. <laughs>
1: Sorry. Well, it's not definitive. I'm. I'm like trying to remember if that Kurdic guy, I'm pretty sure, Michael Scott and he went by Michael Scott sometimes, and then like Michael S. Kurtic. he did a bunch of things like that were all uh, in these, these variants of his name.
4: Which, you know, arguably was certainly done in the war game hobbies and fandom. So, you know, it's
3: got a great pedigree. I can say something good about Timeship. What I liked about the way that guy wrote Timeship was he decided to to do some weird, and he just stepped on the gas. It's like the Doom Patrol TV show. It's just I'm I'm going to commit to being weird, and here you go. You know.
0: Well, it did give me the opportunity to use the big voice microphone. So
2: I think it's one of our better episodes.
4: <laughs> well, it certainly had a lot of downloads. I uh, I've been su- pleasantly surprised. And I expect a lot more hate mail. But if anyone wanted to send us emails about hate or anything else, where would Opinions. they send it? Liz?
0: Uh, taco. Um, <laughs> okay. Send your emails to saveforhalfpodcast at gmail.com, where we will eventually read them two years from now. And if when you insist, rich.
4: we could forward something to John Peterson, unless it's hate mail in which... <laughs> <laughs>
1: I, I get enough of the hate mail already. It's, a, it's unless it's really
4: funny, then we
3: might, you know. <laughs>
1: yeah. I have a I have a feeling
3: we'll know when John's agent hears this episode. <laughs> <laughs> right.
4: John's agent says cease and desist <laughs> from what everything. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, we shall skip into a pod break, and then we will talk about the elusive shift.
1: Ooh. Dun, dun, dun. Into a world without nearly enough quality gamer podcasts they came. The Gronknaar Files, a podcast about role-playing games from back in the day. You know they're experts because they speak with British accents. Find them at armchairadventureblog.com iTunes, or wherever fine podcasts are served. Life is hectic on the run, a frantic rush to get things done, so when you're just about to flop, why don't you stop? And enjoy a big, big boy, the double-deck hamburger treat. National favorite coast to coast,
2: distinctively precious big boy.
4: with John Peterson to talk about his latest book, The Elusive Shift from MIT Press. John, thanks for coming back on the show.
1: Well, it's always a pleasure. It feels like home at this point. I mean, I've hung out so much with you guys. It's always a thrill for me to be back. And yeah, thanks for having me.
4: Aw. (laughs) Aw. And now I'll stamp your card and, you know, five (laughs) will give you a free hamburger.
2: (laughs) I think we should clarify for anybody who's listening that uh john peterson and the elusive shift is not a band it is a book <laughs> i made that mistake we're past it now
4: <laughs> are you sure because i downloaded a sweet album but...
1: <laughs> oh okay
2: it's Must all spoken
1: word yeah it's kind of like to a 50s jazz you know speakeasy i'm sorry when
2: mike sent the emails like we gotta check out this john john peterson and the elusive shift and it sounded for sure like you totally shifted <laughs> directions in your your studies
4: and i mentioned I mean, about covering a book and he's like great what book
1: <laughs> the elusive shift
3: oh <laughs>
1: Well, I'm apparently now a best-selling cookbook author, so you could could argue (laughs) that I shifted directions. (laughs) All
3: right. Without further ado, Jim, start us off. Oh, I'm so happy. I have my copy of The Elusive Shift with an elusive signature right in it. No chance anybody's forging your signature, John.
1: I actually, I think it's eminently forgeable. It's just a squiggle I do so hastily. No one could even make out what it is. I, I, when I have to sign things like as a group with other people, my signature is always just unrecognizable. So,
4: is it worse than mine?
3: I'm not sure if I've seen yours. Uh, I haven't seen your signature. That really? Of? I thought I'd sign some victorious books for you. Uh, nope, not for me. Okay,
4: I'll have to sign something sometimes so we can compare.
2: Because
4: mine's Probably. pretty horrid too, but. Was,
3: was there like a rubber stamp and a giant X involved? <laughs>
2: mm,
3: no, but probably should have been. <laughs> I'm sorry, John. Let me back all the way up to thank you for sending me the lovely autographed copy. Oh, yeah. The, the very first thing that interested me about this, having read uh, Playing at the World, was that that came out of like a little independent press that uh, I was unfamiliar with. But uh, the elusive shift is from, uh, not only from M.I.T., Press. But as I look on their website, they've got a whole dedicated game history series of books. And and this book is not the first book in that series. So can you talk about how you got involved with MIT Press and part of this larger game history series they're doing?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, after Playing at the World came out, I guess some academics read it, which is good. I'm not sure it was really intended for an academic audience or at least I wasn't sure who playing at the world was intended for. Like It was what I thought was interesting to write about. And it's, um, it's a very self-indulgent book in some respects. It's just kind of, it went wherever I thought the story needed to go and in, in absolutely as much detail as I thought I needed to talk about that. And so, but, but there were academics who were into it and a couple of them uh, have invited me to work on projects or uh, contribute to journals or things like that. And I believe that the second book in the MIT game history series is an anthology called Zones of Control. And this is a book about war games, and it kind of gives a variety of perspectives on contemporary war games, war game history. And it's from a mix of designers, academics, and kind of um, whatever I am, I guess I fall into other, but I, I was uh, brought into the project to write the first chapter, which was called A Game Out of All Proportion. That was kind of about how a hobby miniaturized war. That was the subtitle, kind of, you know, effectively a, a capsule history of kind of military wargaming, Prussian Kriegspiel into kind of the Avalon Hill and miniature war game traditions, Wells, Stevenson, all that up past D and D a bit, looking again at things like Warhammer and where where we've gone since D and D came out, up to, you know, the you know, Cohen games that we have today. From from doing that actually I met a guy named Henry Lowwood who has been working on war game scholarship for some time, game scholarship in general, who turned out to be the co-series editor of the MIT Press Game History series. I'd given a lecture at Stanford. He works at Stanford. Uh, he's he's part of their library there. You know, He and I had lunch, and we talked about the Game History series. And the elusive shift had been kind of creeding for a while, <laughs> something that I was writing, I initially thought was going to be an essay, actually, that was not going to be nearly as long as it turned out to be. That was really more focused on the part, the chapter that's called the, the Role of the Referee, a little bit about how like stories, you know, who, who kind of runs the story at the game, how, how tightly pegged to a story a role playing game um, is or should be. And by this point though, by the time we talked to Henry about it, it had really kind of turned into something I knew was gonna be a book. And so we had a discussion about whether the game history series might not be a home for that. With academic presses, these things tend to take a while to get get done. They're they're busy. And, you know, you go through, you know, blind review processes and things like that and kind of have to answer reviewer comments. So it, it took a bit for it to get into press. R- really, it was mostly written, I'd say, in like 2016. Um, so,
0: working for a university, I can safely say everything takes a while to happen, whatever it is. <laughs>
1: Yeah.
3: (laughs) Well, well, surely now that you've been through that academic rigor, you can now call yourself a official game historian and scholar.
1: Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's people can call me what they want to call me. I'm just going to write the stuff I think is cool. And if people want to read it, they should read it. (laughs) That's pretty much how I look at it. You know, looking at the website, the, the MIT
2: website, it shows you have two books out, but one's next year. Have you talked to future you yet?
1: I know future me keeps telling me that this thing is coming, but it's not out yet. Yeah, it's it's still a little ways off. And uh, although I, it's so far off, I don't really want to like get into the details of it. I think it's coming out in like October. This book is called Game Wizards. And it's an expansion of an essay that I did in 2014, I think. It was called The at Sheridan Springs, which is kind of a corporate history of TSR about the circumstances leading up to Gary's ouster.
0: Oh, I remember reading that.
1: Yeah, Game Witchers kind of is that as a book length book. It's what kind of a creed did, as I did more and more research <laughs> around that and it just turned into its own whole thing. But in the middle of a publicity tour for this book, let's talk about this book. It's not a publicity store. We're here to we're here to talk about the earliest days of RPG theory and all the cool things people did with RPGs in their first few years, which I have a question regarding
4: uh some of the initial parts of the book, you discuss, for a while, TSR seemed to promote the idea that the best way to learn D&D was to play it. Do you
1: remember that part? Well, I mean, I, I think that was had to be true. I mean, there there was no instruction on how to play the game at all in OD&D, right? I mean, to the point where, apart from the example dialogue, no one who just picked this up. And I mean, I, I've talked to so many people who didn't live in the Twin Cities or like Geneva, who in 1974 got a copy of d and and had to figure out how to use it and just couldn't. Until they went to that con where they played with Ernie, Gygax, and suddenly they got it, right? You just need 10 minutes sitting down with somebody and suddenly you get it. Uh, Mike Bernard tells me that story all the time about people coming up to him and you know, the first year or two the game was out and being like, I have these books? Like, What What are you actually supposed to do with this game? And you'd be like, no, 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 just sit down, Like, you know, let's play a bit. And yeah, in 10 minutes, people got it.
4: Weffley, when do you think TSR finally realized this isn't going to work and we need to do something else? Because- from what I've read, it seemed like they kind of defended that position for a little while.
1: Well, I mean, I, the Holmes basic set, obviously, was their first real attempt to have somebody who was not in their insider click look at this and try to explain to someone who was just trying to figure out what to do, how to do it. And of course, you know, J.R. Holmes, who was a, a you know, professor in California, he volunteered effectively to produce a beginner's guide that would make it clear to people how you're supposed to approach this game. And you you kind of needed someone who wasn't so versed in it that they couldn't see all the unspoken things you needed to say. So I'd say that was the first attempt to get there. And then, of course, the AD&D system, I mean, you know, which was a much larger and more elaborate project. I mean, that that was intended to create something that was pretty different from OD&D in the sense that it was much more prescriptive, much less, hey, kind of, this is Burger King, have it your way. It was instead, no, 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 like, you're supposed to do it this way. And if you're doing it this way, you're doing AD&D. And if you're not doing it that way, then you're playing some other game. I'm sorry for you. And Holmes
4: seemed to come from the literary point of view as far as the... Discussion you make in the book between the simulationists and the literary slash
1: cinematic schools. Yeah, I mean, I so and just speaking to what what that is in the book, the the first chapter is called the two cultures, and it's really referring to the two pre existing fan communities that ended up being the earliest adopters of D&D. And of course, Wargamers are the one we immediately think of. It was originally sold as rules for Fantastic Medieval Wargames campaigns and advertised in Wargaming zines and played at Wargaming conventions. And so obviously Wargamers were a big part of that initial audience, but kind of you know, I, I don't know how expected it was. I mean, I think we, I even have some quotes from Gary in 74 talking about how he's not really sure how big this market would be. But science fiction fandom, which encompassed fantasy fandom or all, all sorts of speculative fiction fandom, they, they were the other potential initial audience. And you kind of get the sense from the way Gary talked about it at the time, he didn't have a lot of interface to that. Community. But I mean, there's just a ton of documentary evidence, right, that there was a, a very rapid and um, very obsessive uptake from those people, of which, you know, the most direct manifestation is Alarms and Excursions, which splintered off from APL from the fanzine of the Los Angeles Science Fiction Society and kind of became the first real place that people talked about D&D outside of the kind of big tent that TSR was was trying to erect with its own uh, publication efforts and conventions and so on that community brought to it yeah maybe more of a story focus and you do start to see conflict origin you know pretty early on between people who came to the game saying well I expect when I sit down with uh, the referee or dungeon master game master whatever you want to call him I expect to have like a collaborative experience where we're kind of working together to tell the story but then they there they would you know lee gold herself the editor of alarms you know reports going to caltech and you know feeling like the dungeon masters there who came out of the spartan wargaming society much more played against the players and like these perceptions of a difference or some kind of a schism these were tensions that would turn out to be very profound ones in the first years of the game and arguably still today in the sense that they created some of the the need for a theoretical framework that kind of explain, okay, there are people who are approaching this game one way or who are really looking at it like it's a game or a competition or maybe maybe a conflict simulation. And then there's other people who are looking at like our objective is to have like a story and end up with a narrative. And as uh, one, one of the people in the community put it, not to kill the players, but to give them a thrilling ride. Like it's like a theme park. You're bringing them to make their, their characters uh, have this exciting experience, but one where they'll ultimately prevail and everyone will have fun in the end.
0: With the The problem solving aspect of the game versus the role-playing aspect, you know, the ability of the player to take on a persona as being the most important part. Would you say that this ties into the shift from, you know, the hardliners roll your stats in order, basically Mm -hmm. your problem solving based on predetermined variables, to roll stats but put them where you want them? tying into allowing you to play a desired persona.
1: Yeah, I found that a particularly interesting thread to follow. And really it's the first place the book gets into the way people talked about role playing and what they thought made it different is largely people following precisely that thread. And you know, it's it's fascinating, so there's so many facets to this discussion. There were people who thought that hardline will just roll your stats as given. I mean, of course, there is a very simulation-you Aspect to that, you know, that that seems to accord well with the traditions of conflict simulation. But at the same time, Ed symbolists say, of chivalry and sorcery would look at that and say, this is actually an opportunity for role playing. This is an opportunity for you to test. Okay, I'm a thief, but I have like horrible dexterity. Well, then (laughs) you're funny you know, play, play this up for comic effect and like have fun with that. So you can look at that hardlining in kind of two ways. You can look at that hardlining from, okay, I've now got tactical difficulties. It'll be hard for me to open this chest or whatever. But then there's a whole other way, hardline way to look at that as a role player of, well, now I have this obligation to play this character and to play them to the statistics as they were generated. And the degree to which like D&D actually anticipated that people would, take things this way is unclear, right? The original rules don't say a lot about how you're supposed to deal with having like a low intelligence. There's a throwaway line about it that talks about how the referee might decide that some action you proposed uh, for your character, a statement of intention, as we talked about in the book, that you voiced for your character wouldn't really be appropriate for their intelligence but what that practically meant and kind of how that interacted with this emerging idea that there was such a thing as a role-playing game that we're now doing and that it's different, that that's the stuff I'm trying to tease out. That's yeah. where I find the community discussions about that so fascinating.
0: You know, I've argued about the reverse of that. I am not a theoretical physicist, but say in the superhero role-playing game, My character is one. How do I appropriately play a character of genius-level intellect when I myself am not one? I do my best, but I'm not going to believably be able to make the decisions that character would genuinely make.
4: Which gets you into that Point of do you just make a roll to see if something happens or the early idea of describe what your character does and then the GM says whether it works or not. Well, yeah. if you're not a theoretical physicist, how exactly
1: are you going to describe what you
0: <laughs> need to do? I science until it works. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly, It's Matt, Matt Damon says in The Martian, right? We're going to science the Free yeah. This.
0: Um,
1: <laughs> I, I think it is kind of an, an open question, right, to the to the early adopters it was anyway, like what the referee's responsibilities for that were. Is the referee supposed to kind of tell you what to do? And it's it's fascinating. You know, one of the things I dwell on a lot in the second chapter is all the circumstances in which you may not be able to make statements of intention for your own character as a player, because you know, there are all kinds of reasons for this. But intelligence is, is an example of that, where or being, being possessed by your magic sword, which has far higher ego than you're able to deal with, and or being charmed, or even just having a collar. I mean, this whole concept of a caller, which isn't very well defined in, in D&D, from our examples we have from tournament play early on, we see there were circumstances where some other player sitting around the table would be explaining what your character does, and you're supposed to go along with that. And like some, some people would, and some people were like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do something else. And kind of who who gets listened to and the circumstances around all of that Yeah, fascinating. From the early 80s, I
4: only ever encountered callers at tournaments. I never went to anybody's home table and had a had a caller that was just something that was never done. Yeah, the book said you should have a caller, but nobody paid attention to it.
1: I mean, the, the Gold family, they talk a bit about Lee and Barry. I think it might be Barry who said this, that beginning players, it's especially useful for if you've just shown up and you don't really know what to do yet. You might want to let a caller call for your character until you learn to call for yourself, I think is the way that they put it. And so you can, you can imagine it rising in those kind of circumstances outside of something like tournament play, but it's, it's an idea that quickly fell by the wayside and probably for the best. Yeah,
4: from the beginning, I got shark tanked it was you know (laughs) what do you do (laughs) no you tell me mike what does your character do i i i I do this while you're dead Ah, (laughs) well there
3: are i mean there are different forms of that from the historical one like i can handle a table up to about eight but once it gets to 10 12 13 i need somebody to help herd the cat so i'll say you want to co-gm for me or do you want to be party leader and i'm effectively turning them into a caller just to help Me organized the chaos,
4: and Gygax was supposed to have like twenty people or more at a time at his table back in Lake Geneva. Uh, Yeah, I can maybe see why a caller would be necessary.
1: Yeah, well, and if you look at the D and D campaign rules from the original booklets, right, they talk about how your campaign can have like fifty players in it. Yeah, probably the situation (laughs) in the Twin Cities, they wouldn't all show up every time, right? But you're tracking effectively what like fifty people are doing and trying to keep track of it all.
0: And I generally maybe if. I'm I was very lucky, would have three players, but usually it was more like two.
1: Right. I mean, I, I was in a few games like, like that in the 90s where there were just way too many players, but we all were so into the kind of more theatrical dimension of RPGs that basically just ended up 11 of us would be spectators as one player talked to the GM for like the entire session, and then next time it would be somebody else, and the action kind of only very rarely and intermittently involved m- multiple characters at a time. So I've, I've seen the bad states that can get into. Or like Corbett,
4: you talk about that game that was like... Large and you and Dave were getting ignored, so you two pretty much just role played in the corner with each other's characters and him jipping your character out of gold.
2: (laughs) Well, it was just role played on our own. Well, you've done that before in a game where you kind of just like start role playing with another player and
4: yeah. What I'm talking, what John was talking about,
2: yeah. Though that did have the iconic line of "Hey, we're here to play a game, not to have fun." (laughs) Ultimately yeah worth it just for that yeah totally <laughs> <laughs> we had talked about divisiveness or well okay, i brought up divisiveness and which was very divisive really it was very divisive <laughs> but you know the, the more i think about it the more i i, I realize that we we are a bunch of, of mismatched kelly's heroes or or hogan's heroes maybe when, when we're in a group there's always somebody who wants to do the mapping and it's boring for me but uh, somebody always wants to do that somebody wants to crunch numbers somebody has to draw and doodle out all the characters somebody's the leader and some everybody has a certain personality and skill set that they bring to the table and that's the one thing i always like about role-playing it's a it's a group of motley crew
3: (laughs) (laughs) what what you're talking about is something i i didn't i wasn't aware of at first which is uh, outside of people who are uh, interested in acting as a vocation you know like would enjoy the challenge of playing against type in different roles everybody will eventually uh fall into their archetype like who who they are as a
1: person i think there's some truth to that yeah,
3: like a le- leaders, yeah, like that. organizers, uh, wily coyotes who always want to throw spells.
1: So this is why I'm always like a drunken arsonist, I guess. Again, <laughs> of-
3: <laughs> drunken homicidal
4: kleptomaniac with a treasure map.
3: Yeah, but John, the number one thing in this book I, that makes me wish I could just autocratically force every gamer to read it, particularly those that are in their 20s and 30s is what you teased out towards the end about this is generational relearning of first principles of how this stuff all works. They were, they were going at it a hammer and tongue in the 70s, discovered a lot about things, and then the whole new crew of kids came in and crashed the system in the early 80s, and then they grew up and they started re-arguing the same things that the the sci-fi fans and the war gamers had already kind of figured out. Like in 2020, there's still, I'll call them discussions, flame war. (laughs) about a lot of this and like it's brand new they did an a whole adventure with the players in wheelchairs and isn't that great no it's stupid (laughs) yeah with no understanding of what's going on underneath the hood.
1: And, and definitely, I mean, mo- most of the things that I, I personally find worth writing are things that just try to rescue stuff that's been forgotten, right? That I think still has some some relevance, some salience, or gives us insight into the situation that we're in now. You know, to me, to me a lot of this stuff, unfortunately, was just effaced by especially the discussions on the internet that began in the late 90s into the early 2000s, which are what most people who think about RPG theory are really thinking about those discussions, right? Or thinking about the forge or thinking about maybe use nut discussions and, you know, rec games, FRPV, FRP advocacy, things like that. And yeah, I think it is helpful to understand that a lot of these principles, they're, 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 I don't want to say obvious, but they're going to occur to thinking people who encounter these games and are, you know, contending with, how to rectify the difficulties that they encounter around the table. And because we don't really record them because there are no institutions that kind of pass this knowledge down because this is all in analog media and like, you know, you can't find it on a Google search. A lot of it just gets forgotten. And a lot of people I think who did important things and had important discoveries are just lost to history if we don't do things like this. I
3: mean, even the parts that aren't vanishing under our feet, like quicksand, you can can email Lee Gold today. I've done it. When we did a show on uh, alarms and excursions, I emailed her and said, can we please have the first five issues of A&E? And she gave them to us, and it was great. That stuff's there to get if you want it, but who's going to do that? You've got like 10 citations per page right in book for- easy book form.
4: Yeah, if anything, I think you hit a lot more fanzines this go around than you did in playing at the world. I
1: think that's probably true. And, you know, it's fantastic, the project, to get alarms available. Of course, when I started Elusive Shift, and like like I said, I mostly wrote it in like 2016. Those weren't out yet. I did actually provide some of those scans to Lee, including her scan of number one. Thank you. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm a huge fan of anything that brings this stuff into digital media so that it can be more broadly studied. But that's just alarms, right? I mean, what about Wild Hunt? Right. What about Lords of Chaos? What about more the quick Quincy Gazette, right? I mean, there's like all these fanzines that this discussion took place in that I cite in this. And in the fullness of time, they will all become digitally available. But doing things like the Elusive Shift, having an academic press talk about and cite those things is I hope will help steer people towards understanding. Here's where some of these resources are. If you want to go looking for it, you I know, mean, honestly the bibliography is like half the reason I do these things. Just to be able to say, here's a set of essays. I think are important where people talked about these fundamental concepts. Should you be playing D D like a, a war game or should you be playing it like you're playing through a fantasy novel. You know, can we just like highlight what where those discussions happened, you know, at least shine a spotlight on what the resources are. It's worth having posterity preserve. And I think without work like this, we don't even have that, right? Those stuff, that stuff won't get scanned unless people know it's worth scanning, it's worth studying. Yeah, and it's mimeographed paper that'll just
4: fade away after time. Getting back to the idea of game design, there was one point. I don't remember what fanzine, it may have been Alarums and Excursions, or it might have been some of the others, but there was this, uh, I read a continuing refrain, this idea that some felt that RPGs like D&D that said, do your own thing, if you need an extra rule, come up with it, et cetera, et cetera was just bad game design, and it was a res- An example of bad game designers who are making the purchaser create their own rules.
1: Yeah, probably you're thinking of Ed Symbolist uh, who made that argument about D&D. Was he At, the one that
3: called it a game design kit, not a game?
1: Well, no. So that—that's John Freeman, who's a critic. Who was actually like a mainstream critic. He wasn't a game designer, though. He was actually one of the founders of uh, Automated Simulations, which became Epics. And so he was—he worked on like Temple of Apshai and very early oh. kind of computer adaptations in the spirit of D so, and D. So Freeman is an interesting guy in his own right. He was actually went on to be one of the founders of Electronic Arts. Like his his little studio was when the first people brought into EA when oh. EA kicked off in whatever eighty three or so. Yeah, Freeman, I love. I I love his uh, analysis of D&D. He calls it, you know, it's not not so much a game as a design a game kit, and then goes even farther and says it's not so much a system as a system for designing a game system. (laughs) And talking about OD&D here, right, precisely because of its just open-endedness, the fact that you can... Pick this up, and you're freely invited to modify it anyway, add rules to it. The consequences of that were so immense for the creation of RPGs as an industry. Not to give away the end of the book too much, but really, I mean, the RPG industry resulted from that kind of meta game. That shipped with D&D. Like d Like DD was kind of two games in one. So, this is what the last paragraphs of Elusive Ship say effectively. You know, there's this dungeon adventure game, and people like Ed Symbolist condemned it as being very shallow, and, you know, it doesn't really give you enough to work with. You have to make everything yourself. And if you're having a cool experience with it, that's because you invested something really cool into it that wasn't something Gary Gygax or Dave Artisan thought of. That's you who did it. In addition to that explicit game, there was then this implicit game that resulted from Gygax telling you, hey, Modify this stuff however you want. Like, make better rules than that. Don't let us do any more of your imagining for you. That meta game, which was more a game for the referees than for the players, I think directly resulted in an RPG industry. And there are just all these threads you can follow where, you know, like, think of Donald Saxman, the guy who designed Superhero 2044. They were playing d there in at the Indiana University uh, under Mike Ford. Mike Ford just let them create these portals that went into this world where they were suddenly facing modern adversaries. And then there's Doc Octopus and you got to deal with Doc Ock. And like from that resulted the game Superhero 2044 from the rules they built into their D&D campaign in order to like accommodate these comic book heroes they found through like a magic portal. That, that's a perfect statement of the way that that invitation to just go make your own rule, take this wherever you want to take it, led to RPGs themselves becoming a genre. Arduin. Arduin, yeah. Good example. Well, And
3: and, re- and recognized this so at the time because there was a point where they TSR and Gary looked at it and went, wait a minute, D&D is going to become the new uh, Xerox or Thermos. We're not going to be able to trademark this name anymore because everybody just says they're playing D&D. <laughs> yeah.
1: And like, what, what products do you make? for a practice that that's diverse, right? If you, if you want to make supplements, like, do you make them with Doc Octopus <laughs> or, you know, <laughs> like what, you know, what's your direction from that? So certainly aside from any commercial motivations and anything relating to the sideline co-creator of d and I mean, AD and d was maybe above all an attempt to just say, no, no, no more leaving it to you. No more Burger King. You know, now you're going to have it our way. <laughs> like, you know, this is our game. Take it, leave it. We're going to make content that's like for this very specific stipulated set of rules. And yet they
4: still like stuck in the end of the <laughs> yeah. player's handbook and the and the DM's guide. These are just suggestions.
1: Oh they do. It's so, it's so hilarious. I mean- It's like they're trying every, to have it both ways. This is another line from the book. You know, it's it's much easier to say that your system isn't open-ended. Say that you've closed it off. You've accounted for every possibility. The rules are all there. You're supposed to play it. It's much easier to claim that than it is to actually do it, <laughs> right? And to like create a system that you don't have to innovate around.
3: Mike and Liz, you've both played at Gary's table. Did Gary run his game like he told everyone else to? No. No. See, that's trying to have your cake and eat it too.
0: Well, the thing is- he- even today, you're going to have those two different schools of thought. You're going to have the game purchasers who want the open-ended and want the free ability to customize the game to their specifications. And you're going to have the ones who they buy your game, and if they feel it's too open-ended, they gripe about the fact that there's not enough in the game to have made it a worthwhile purchase for them.
4: I'm just making my own game anyway. Why should I buy yours? Well,
0: exactly. You can't please everybody. You've got the people who are going to want to have as much spelled out as humanly possible because they don't want to have to do the work, and or they don't have time to do the work, they don't feel. And then you're going to have the ones who would feel too overly constrained. You know, I want the freedom to tweak as I wish and not have my player's bitch at me because I did so.
3: (laughs) This is why I enjoyed this book so much, because there's a bunch of us on this podcast that are game designers of one stripe or another, even if you're just running your own campaign, but you created the setting, you're a game designer. There are all these Venn bubbles that we as uh, gamers of a mature age uh, (laughs) intuitively understand, and we discuss it all the time. In The Elusive Shift, suddenly now I've got a nice framework to slide it all into.
4: I hadn't quite thought about it until John put it that way, but it's right that game design or campaign design or whatever that's the game for the gm and i hadn't quite thought of it that way but you're right
3: like what's my constant refrain well 40 years of game design haven't fixed bad dms and broken players yet but you're welcome to give it another go okay well that's glib and that's funny but this is suddenly okay now try and get in the center of that black cow model axis so the storytellers and the simulation war gamers are all happy at the same time that's tough
1: Yeah. And I mean, I, I found the the Black O model, um, you know, just because really of GNS, right? And the fact that the, this idea has gone through so many permutations. And again, there, we, we couldn't even enumerate on I mean, if we spent the entire podcast doing it, how many different people have proposed some kind of typology, whether it's about players or about system design or about the form that campaigns take of this tension, right? And there, there are always a few constants in the way this tension is characterized. And You know, part of what I I love showing in The Elusive Shift was how these tensions even go back to the wargaming community before... D and D came out. How there were people who were concerned. Oh well, I like fun war games. Other people, you know, are obsessed with simulation and giving every little detail and making the uniforms be painted properly. And other people are just rules lawyers who just want to win at any cost and find loopholes. And like, you know, th- this idea that these what the Forge people call creative agendas, right? Were were always a factor even before people took this to the realm of role playing. Um, <laughs> shows just how hard it will be for us ever to get a resolution to this. Yeah. And we just kind of have to accept that there's going to be this this pluralism. When you design games, when you run games, when you play characters, that pluralism is always something that can manifest around the tabletop. And I guess I ultimately argue it's productive in the sense that it's fueled so much of the creativity, both of how people approach design and how people just approach play as players.
4: Yeah. And I think you could say that from the very beginning onward, the industry, what games are new or hot or fun or whatever, seem to veer between those two camps. Crunchy rules, light rules, more freeform roleplay, back to crunchy systems, and back and forth. Because in the end, it's there's a sweet spot, and that sweet spot's usually going to be different for each person.
3: Or like Liz was saying, here's here's a, a book of rules for how to design your own setting versus a gazetteer. Where the settings all done for you? Or Empire of the Petal Throne.
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs> which is really the the first i think you know attempt to have the rules just mesh directly not not only with a setting but with a kind of narrative arc right there's a narrative arc built into EPT the point of EPD, at least if you play it as the, the rules describe it, was that you're you're a barbarian or whatever who has shown up at the city of Chakala on your boat, and you sell your boat, and you live in this you know foreigners quarter, and you take missions, and those missions are intended to introduce you to Soliani culture. When you reach fourth level, then you will have attained your citizenship.
4: And there's no argument as to, well, what if my character doesn't want to be a citizen? Yes, you do. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> you're
1: right. There's kind of like, this This is what you're here for. You're here to learn about Tecumel, like, you know, get used to it. Right.
3: Or on the other end of that exact same axis, uh, Metamorphosis Alpha, where your narrative arc is to get up to the bridge and save the ship, but nobody does it because they just want to kill monsters
1: and steal their stuff. <laughs> Actually, they, they just perish ignominiously along the way, paranoia style in my experience,
0: but... <laughs> usually before they even realize they're on a ship. Yep.
1: <laughs> you know, just watching Jim Jim Ward run that and uh, the loving way that he deals death to <laughs> every single character. Oh, it's like being uh, killed by your grandpa. It is. It's just <laughs> uh, or,
0: or or as we said Mwah. before, like being killed by Mr. Rogers. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> He says, grinning. <laughs> I gotta tell you, I uh, made the mistake of checking in too early with Tim Cask on how he's enjoying the book. He was only about thirty or forty pages into it when I called, and he was just triggered, man. He was so triggered he oh. couldn't talk about it. It was like I called up a World War II vet and said, "How'd you enjoy that premiere of Saving Private Ryan?" <laughs> so many of the sources you were people you were citing were like his still mortal enemies from back in the day. Oh yeah,
1: yeah, I'm sure Tim will love it. I wonder what side Tim would be on. (laughs) It it was a mutual thing back in the day, I'll say. The community (laughs) was um, a a little bit concerned about some of the things Tim had to say, especially about fanzines and about designs that were outside of uh, the TSR umbrella. But, you know, I mean, it, it, it was a time when, because it was so small, because it was really unclear... That this was going to become this like huge thing i mean the the desperation right of the principals that were just trying to like have a job and, yeah like, pay make and stuff. So a lot of money right, yeah. doing this i mean the the protectiveness they had of it i think it's it's completely understandable um in retrospect yeah i
2: pretty much read this cover to cover and uh, haven't just skimmed it really quickly and read the first chapter and you know nothing like that but um <laughs> could you explain the blackow model is it blackow sure
1: yeah, as if I were a ten-year-old. Say a ten-year-old <laughs> yeah.
4: with a short
2: attention span.
1: Very, very short attention span. So, I mean, the, the Blackout model was this notion that that was created by Glenn Blackout, who is the co-editor of the the Wild Hunt which was an APA that was run out of MIT. He was part of the MIT Strategic Game Society. You know, He was one of the probably most prolific early commenters, uh, commentators on D&D, frankly. I mean, he, he wrote a ton of kind of early essays about it. And he was very opinionated, always in flame wars with people like poor Steve Perrin, who did RuneQuest, you know, and things like that. But he kind of took a few steps back from the kinds of conflicts he was seeing in the fanzines, and decided that you know motivating all this was a difference in really the player preferences for for the forms that campaigns could take. And he had these four elements that he saw as as the overriding feel of a particular group when they played in a campaign or in a particular session. And he divided it into storytelling, which for him really meant a, a game style where the referee has very broad power and latitude to change the game situation and really is is kind of uh, very much in charge, I guess, of where the narrative is going. That's the first one role-playing which is much more kind of player centric where players are there to inhabit their characters player death is very rare they develop elaborate backstories kind of enjoy inhabiting their characters and playing through them then there was um, what he initially called ego tripping um, though it's it's more commonly now called power gaming power gaming would be the hyper competitive the rules lawyer the person who really wants to just accumulate in this identifying with the character this vast min-max. power wealth what would have you min max Everything else, and then finally, there's there's wargaming, which he looked at as being separate from that, but being much more focused on simulation, on understanding tactical conditions, and kind of this would be you know kind of the antithesis of role playing, where in the wargaming model, player death is common because you often will lose these kind of tactical situations that you're up against, and so your characters are expendable, I guess, in this model. But but his argument was that every campaign is going to have a certain amount of those four elements in it it's really kind of a question of which dominates. Although by the time he introduced this in 1980, he was a pretty mature player in the sense, you know, he was no longer a kid, but also, you know, he had gotten past that initial rush that the game is really about power gaming, which he argued is where most people start is with that kind of self-identification and, oh my God, I get to be a superhero and I get to feel like I killed the dragon. But he he even acknowledged Power gaming always has some part to play in this because people like to feel important and like having that sense that we saved the world and the satisfaction of that at the end of the campaign is always a component of like what what a game can deliver. But he preferred more of the the role playing style, the storytelling style, and you know, he, people would graph this right like as a as this this two axis model and kind of identify quadrants that they were associated with. So a lot of people really into the role-playing you know, storytelling quadrant would identify themselves there. People in alarms and excursions did. And bad people like grognards and those, those munchkins. This is a term I talk about a lot in elusive <laughs> when people started using the pejorative ageist term munchkins for You can just call him design. Mike Stewart. It's okay. He's yeah. right there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> hey, <Beautiful>. you kid. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean they they would be associated with more of the power gaming or the war gaming dimensions of this and it, it was a, a real schism in the community in the sense that the kinds of people who participated in the APAs really were roughly ascribing to a one true way, saying like, yeah, the role-playing storytelling way is the way things are supposed to be. And it was very much a minority who pushed back and said, actually I think, you know, the simulation component of this is, you know, equally a cutting edge in um, how we can approach FRP. and
3: You're having fun wrong.
1: Yes, exactly.
3: I was going to bring up that according to some of the uh, people you cite in the book, since three of us I know and four of us I think all discovered D&D in 1979, the same year, but at different ages. So I I was a... uh, a player trained by grognards, and Mike and Liz were munchkins.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, mine was more, it was definitely at least 1980. It might have been 1981, but it was right in that period when I got the Holmes book. I do think it's interesting, though. It sort of segues into where you talk about later on Tim Waddell's four levels of D&D campaigns, and level one is the hole in the ground. The dun- gilded hole. Yeah, yeah. The, gilded hole yeah. yeah, the dungeon is the only thing that exists. Characters are dropped directly into it. That's it. And when I first got the box set and I had no experience with role playing, I didn't have any other role players to, to talk to or to see how to get the most out of the game. That was how I first started running d d my couple of friends, you know, they would make up characters. They immediately began there in the dungeon, right from the get go.
3: Oh, B one, baby, I bet. And,
0: and that's what they're doing. I do not even remember whether or not my box set had B one or B two in it, but it even probably
3: B two
4: was. You know, you had the the, the caves of chaos, which was yeah. a monster strip mall.
0: But there, there was at least the keep, you know, as something yeah. separate. Yeah. But the stuff that I did, you know, that I quote unquote made myself, you know dungeon. That was it. So
1: yeah, I mean, but that's what the rules told you to do. I mean, if you had seen, you know, OD&D instead of, you know, Holmes basic, and I forget exactly how Holmes basic cast this uh, compared to od d but like OD&D tells you like, okay, so you're gonna be the dungeon master. Here's your job you know, the referee, I should say. You know, here's your job. Sit down and draw at least six levels of the dungeon. (laughs) That's like your first responsibility. Well, in Holmes, there was the sample
4: dungeon, which literally started you on the stairs going down into the dungeon, so...
0: Yeah, and that was what I took as the paradigm. You start, you're there at the dungeon, let's go in. (laughs) Yeah, the four levels of campaigns and the four different aspects of gaming. Level one, to me anyway, corresponds... Very strongly, with what you might call you know either the power gamer or the war gamer, you're solving problems and or the only real thing that you have to look forward to is to increase your abilities and to increase in power because there is not yet any outside world beyond showing up in these dungeons. <laughs>
1: No, oh, exactly, and, and Blackout made this argument that if you play the original rules as written, it's going to lead inexorably to a power gaming mm-hmm. campaign. And like this, this is part of what Ed Ed Symbolist is pushing back on, right? He's like, look, the rules, the system, the things that the books tell you to do—they're they're what matters, right? They they determine the kind of game you're going to have. And if all the rules are about, okay, this is what you kill, here's how much you can carry, like here's what it takes to break down a door, <laughs> and if, like that's the only thing there are rules for. Like that's going to prescribe what your game is. Now, I, I think that argument has some limitations. I think that that obviously, as the Donald Saxman example of Superhero Forty Four um, makes very clear, because the game is so open-ended, because it tells you to modify and stick your stuff, your own stuff in, you can. But simplest point was, if you do that, you did it. Right. That's not something that Gygax or Arnas and any of those people did. You did that. That does have, I think, a a certain ring of truth
3: to it. I love the idea that Gary and Tim and those guys thought they were solving a problem with deities, demigods, and heroes. Okay. You're you're just running, you're just tripping off to Asgard with your party and killing Thor. No, you can't because here's his stats. And uh, okay, now we fix that. Nope. Not so
0: much. (laughs) Challenge accepted. (laughs) Right, pretty
1: much. When I talked to Peter Atkinson, uh, one of the first times I was hanging out with him, he was telling me how in his group, you know, deities and demigods was their monster manual. (laughs) (laughs) Not the only one. This is is how they ended up with his primal order system, which is the first thing that uh, Wizards published.
4: All right. Well, th- we appreciate you coming on to talk about the book. Where would you find a copy of Elusive Shift if you wanted to run out and grab one after listening to this? I think
1: it is sold where books are sold on the Amazons and the Barnes and Nobles and the Powell's and at it, certain friendly local game stores and I think even some libraries have it and you know it just it just came out a few weeks ago so it's it's probably not everywhere yet, but if you go to MIT Press's page, they have a whole link list of all the places that you can buy it. And we'll put that in the show notes.
4: Is it available on Kindle? It is. Yes, it is available on Kindle. You can grab it there. All
3: right. Well, thanks for coming
4: on. No,
1: it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
3: (laughs) Always, always. Oh, John, you're like, I like being here. It's just like being home. And every single time we ask, we're like, is he a big deal now? Do you think he'll come on?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Since we're just like home, if you ever want to just Drop in without telling us, that means you can.
4: Fuck <laughs> <laughs> nice. in, help thanks. yourself.
1: Yeah. <laughs> that sounds good.
4: All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening and say good night, everybody.
1: Good night. See ya. Night. The Briar ship.
3: The E Podcast is a production of the Mudhoppy Games Network and the Gang by the band Mississippi Bones. You can find them at mississippibones.bandcamp.com. All player characters mentioned in this podcast are fictional, and any resemblance to PCs living or dead is purely coincidental. No NPCs were armed in the making of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Save or Half.